Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Good morning. You know, John Thomas told me I looked old because I was wearing a sweater. And I'm like, dude, look at my hair. I mean, come on, man. Hope you're doing well this morning. You're going to have to bear a little bit with my voice. We'll see what, what happens here. This is, uh, the Lord is with us, I think. So praise the Lord. Um, before we get rolling this morning, I want to invite Gary Rupel up here. Gary is uh, getting ready to head to Vietnam for five months. And so um, he has, he has a, a, an incredibly important mission that he's going on. He has a wife over at Vietnam that he needs to bring over here. So he's in process of doing that. So we want to pray that God will um, bless, you know, the trip and that he'll keep him safe and all that. But like anyone, anytime we go anywhere, we're missionaries for the Lord. And there's opportunities that God will give us. Um, and Gary has found some opportunities. He's been able to uh, minister over there um, in, in Vietnam. He's connected with some churches and such. And so uh, God has uh, some things for him to do when he's there. And so he'll be over there for about five months, right? Yeah, and uh, so we're going to ask for the Lord's protection, for his guidance, and just for his favor in all of that. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for Gary. We thank you for just bringing him here to Calvary, Lord. We, we've gotten to know him over the years, and what a great guy. Lord loves you, and uh, Lord, I love that he's ready to go anywhere you call him to go, whatever you would call him to do. He has a heart to serve you, to serve your people. And I ask you, Lord, that you would carry him to Vietnam, that you would um, direct his steps, that you would protect and guide him, Lord, uh, as he's there, that you would give him favor, Lord, as, uh, you know, they're walking through this process of immigration, doing it the right way, and oftentimes that's the long way, and yet it is the right way. And so we thank you. We ask you, because of the obedience of just following the laws of the land, Lord, that you give them favor and you give them, you bless them as a result of that. We pray, Lord, that you would just give Gary incredible opportunities to share um, his faith with those around him, Lord. Um, I, I know that he had mentioned that uh, there are many believers in Vietnam, but they're not super strong. And so would you help him to come alongside and to equip some of those around, Lord, whether he just partner with the local church there or if it's just personal discipleship, God, that you would open up doors for him, that you would give him wisdom, and that you would give him the words uh, to share with those there in the area that he will be. So, Lord, we just ask you to go before him, and we thank you that you're with him. We ask for uh, travel mercies as he goes to and from, and that you just uh, bless his time there while, while he's in Vietnam, and that you reveal yourself to him deeper and to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you want to know more about what Gary's doing, you can see him out in the lobby, and he'll, he'll tell you all that's going on over there in Vietnam. So thank you so much, Gary. Um, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, we're continuing our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Acts. We find ourselves in the last verse of the 22nd chapter, moving into chapter 23, with a message entitled, The Unsuspected Road to Rome. The unsuspected road to Rome, once you're there, stand with me. We'll read a portion of our text together, and then we will go through this line by line. Acts chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that you have something specific for each one of us, and we desire to hear from you this morning. Lord, will you just encourage us through the, your scripture this morning? Will you help us to understand the promises that we've been given? Lord, that you are always with us, that you stand for us. That even though there might be, there is a, Spiritual war going on around us, God, you are sovereign and you are in control and we have nothing to worry about. The enemy can plot and plan, Lord, but you thwart his efforts. And so we ask you, God, to just help us this morning to be reminded of your sovereign hand in our lives and that we're to walk in accordance to your 
plan and purposes. And so just guide us along that path this morning and help us to know you more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. I had an epic dad joke that failed miserably, so I won't go into it. But uh, you guys have, <laughs> you know what? They said that the last service, and it still failed. Okay, you've convinced me. So why don't they sell GPSs in Italy? Because all roads lead to Rome, of course. So. <laughs> yeah. I like this service. This service is awesome, man. I like you guys. Hey, you guys are now, you'll never get that time back. You're a little dumber as a result of that, but it's okay. All roads lead to Rome. You've heard it said before. And to be honest, in the ancient world, it was, it was somewhat true. Uh, the Rome had built, the Roman Empire had built such a vast roadway system. It stretched over 250,000 miles. And if you, uh, if you would get on one of those roadways, the main roadways, you would continue to follow it. You would eventually arrive in the very center of Rome called the Navel of Rome where uh, there would be a statue called uh, the Golden Milestone. It was uh, sort of the Roman measuring rod. It was just a, just a monument relating to uh, that from that place they would measure all of the roads and with the, with the Roman measuring rod, and at every mile, Roman mile was about a 1,000 paces, they would place a milestone. And then you would know how far you're away from Rome. But all, all roads would lead to the center of Rome in this place where the golden milestone is, hosted in the Roman Forum. There, if you go to Rome today, you can find a remnant of this uh, miles, the golden milestone there. And you can see it. Um, not only do all the roads uh, lead to Rome back in that day, but there were also unsuspected roads that, that led to Rome. What do I mean? You know, those roads that you find yourself on that you feel that are dead ends. Kind of the proverbial road to Rome, as it were. Paul finds himself in that place on the proverbial unsuspected road to Rome. And it comes by way of a plot to kill him. Here, here Paul... Is in Jerusalem, you know, doing what the Lord's calling him to do, completed his third missionary journey, and as he stands before the people that he loves so dearly, they want to kill him. They want to kill him. Well, the Lord, knowing the road that he has for the Apostle Paul, he gives him some assurance that he's on the right road. And maybe the Lord will give you the same assurance this morning. We don't walk by circumstances we don't walk by, uh, you know, our feelings. We walk by the word of God in accordance to the spirit of God and in, uh, all in the will of the Lord. And so this morning, as Paul finds himself in a place of discouragement, the Lord reminds him, hey, I'm, I'm with you, and I'm going to deliver you to Rome. We find it in verse 11. We didn't read it, but let me read it for you real quick. Paul, did greatly discouraged Doubtful, fearful, the Lord says, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now that should bring us some incredible comfort this morning to know that God is in control. We say it all the time, but do we really believe that? Do you believe even this morning, regardless of your circumstances, where you find yourselves, do you believe, hey, this is the path that the Lord has me on? And he's doing something in my life. It might not be fun. But you know what? He's about his will. He's about accomplishing his plan for your life. And there's something beneficial about uh, us being on that road, isn't there? That the Lord can reveal himself to us in a new and a fresh way. I've been saying this over and over again, but don't despise the road that the Lord has you on. Because he's doing something. He's doing something unique in your life. And he wants to encourage you this morning relating to that. By way of reminder, the Apostle Paul has been in Jerusalem for just a little over a week. And man, has he created some havoc there. Uh, he, he arrives in town. Immediately, there's rumors and accusations relating to him. He goes to the temple. He follows the, the instruction of the elders there, of James and the elders there in Jerusalem. And he goes to the temple. And after about six days, to, uh, near the seventh day of purification, the Jews uh, come against Paul. They beat him up. Uh, the Romans come down, and they rescue him out of that situation. They bring him into the Antonio Fortress, 
where as Paul is going up those stairs, beaten up, bloodied, and bruised, he gives an opportunity to share with the people. He asks the, uh, the, the tribune there, Claudius Lysias, can I share something with the people? And he gives him the opportunity. And so last week, we saw Paul share his testimony with uh, these, his countrymen, the people that he loves so dearly. And man, were things going fantastic until he said the word Gentile. That's when uh, everything just fell apart. What Paul did was he put uh, the Gentiles on the same level as the Jews, and that created a, you know, just, a, just an, a violent outlashing. People were tearing their clothes and throwing dust in the air and all of these sorts of things. And um, Lysias decided, we got to get Paul inside here. And he said, I don't understand what's going on. Remember, he didn't speak the dialect of Hebrew, uh, which was Aramaic at the time. uh, He didn't know what was said. He didn't understand what was going on. All he could see was the result of what Paul had said. So he says, you know what? We're going to beat it out of him. You know, the best way to get answers is just to beat it right out of people. You know, a little waterboarding, a little flogging, all of that, you know, just gets the answers for you. So that's what they're going to do. But it was in that moment that Paul revealed to uh, Lysias and the soldiers there that he was actually a Roman citizen. And so they realized they were acting unlawful. Uh, Paul had not gone, gone through a trial, trial yet. He is not condemned. So the, just the fact that they bound him was against the law. And then to flog a Roman citizen, they wouldn't do that either. So uh, they really quickly back off. And uh, yet Lysias is still responsible for coming to the end of this situation. Like, what is going on here? I can't keep this guy in prison forever, so... This is where we pick the storyline up this morning, where Lysias decides, I need to find out more about why these guys are responding, why the Jews are responding to the Apostle Paul in such a way that they are. And so that's where we pick it up this morning. I've divided these 36 verses up into six sections. We begin by the questioning before the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 30 again. But on on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews... He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Wow. And are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Lysias brings Paul to the council in Jerusalem. The council is also known as the Sanhedrin. It was the 70, not 70, but the 71 uh, men who were the really the re- religious leaders over all religious matters in Jerusalem. It's the highest court that you could go, go before. This uh, actually started all the way back in the Exodus. You recall when Moses was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, and it was by the council of Jethro that he said to Moses, look, there's too many people. There's no way for you to govern all of this all of these matters, you need to set up a council of men who can oversee and help you judge the people. And so uh, by that council, he sets up a council of 70 elders plus him, that's 71. You can say 70 if you like to, that'll work, but it is actually 71. And in fact, the Talmud, which is the writings of the Jews, in fact, they, they would uh, consider it higher than the scriptures, to be honest. It's their exposition of the Bible, the Talmud, the Mishnah, uh, and, and in the Talmud, it actually says 71 councilmen. So the Sanhedrin is made up of 71 people. Now, the Sanhedrin have limited power in Rome. They, they can't do whatever they want. They can govern religious matters and such, but they cannot put people to death. Uh, it was before Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin. And, uh, you know, what, what did they want? They wanted him crucified, but they did not have the power to do it. They could only judge And they judged him as being a blasphemer, but they did not have the power to put him to death. So they needed Pilate to do that for him. And remember, Pilate said, 
hey, I wash my hands of this man's blood. May his blood be upon you and your children. And man, they were like, yes, we'll take it. You know, we'll take his blood upon us. They were so blinded by their emotions, their hatred for Jesus, because he stood contrary to what they believed. And yet he was their Messiah. And so the Sanhedrin here now has been assembled to judge uh, the, the Apostle Paul. It's interesting that Paul was part of the Sanhedrin at one point. We know this because in Acts 26, verse 10, when Paul is telling his testimony once again, he says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That means that he was part of the council that made the decision for Stephen to be stoned. Paul cast his vote for them to, for, for him to, to die. He was part of this council. That means that he knows people on the council. Paul has been raised up under the tutelage of Gamaliel, and there's many of those men that are on this council that probably also had been raised up underneath the tutelage of Gamaliel. He knows these people, and yet there's something distant about him. He's been gone from Jerusalem for 20 years, and what we find is that he's been on the path that the Lord has had him on, and um, we'll see that it was a, a good path. It was a path that he he knew that, uh, the, that the Lord was doing great work. And yet, those in Jerusalem would say that he's standing in contrary to the will of God. The, this council is assembled five times as a result of Jesus Christ and uh, being the Messiah. And uh, one of them, obviously, was when Jesus, I, I spoke about just a second ago, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus assembles. That was an illegal trial, by the way. But they assembled anyway, and they condemned Jesus. Uh, that was the first time that they met. They met also then when Peter and John were brought, brought before the council in Acts chapter 4. Uh, all of the apostles were arrested and brought before the council again in Acts chapter 5. They told them, do not speak in the name of Jesus. So all of that going on. Then they assemble once again at the stoning of Stephen. And then finally we find them assemble here. Acts chapter 23 at the trial of Paul. This would be the last time that we read about the 71 council membership of the Sanhedrin gathering together. From this point on, we never see that in the book of Acts again. All we see is a remnant of the people going to Caesarea towards the end of our uh, chapter 23 to give a, an account of what happened there in Jerusalem. It was not the whole council. We know that what ends up happening in 70 AD is when Rome comes against Jerusalem and the Jews are disbanded from Jerusalem there, that this council never reassembles again, ever. And in fact, many of the, of the council members here in our text are, are Sadducees. And in fact, there are no Sadducees anymore. They were completely disbanded at that point. And so it's just interesting to note that the religious leaders finally come to an account before the Lord, you know, eventually everyone will stand before the Lord and give an account. And um, so it tells us here, Luke says that it begins by the assembling of the council, and then Paul, it says, looking intently at the council. It, that means that he had his eyes fixed on them. He wasn't fearing, and I believe it was a passion for these people. It was like Paul saying, you know, here's one more opportunity that I have to share the gospel with these people. Man, I'm a lucky guy. Oh, are you? Man, if we would just have the same passion for lost people that, that Paul does, he's fixed his eyes on them, and he, he puts himself on the same level by addressing them as brothers. This is his first mistake. They do not see Paul as an equal. They see Paul as a traitor. They see Paul. They, Paul is dead to these people. He's come to Christ, and they're in opposition of Jesus. And so even if Paul had friends on that council, they were friends of his no more. In fact, he was their enemy. And the fact that he would address them as brothers was a slight to this group of people. Not only that, but then Paul goes on to say that I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul is claiming that he has a clear conscience. What he's saying is that for the past 20 years, 
I've been living in accordance with the will of God. I've been doing what God has told me to do. That isn't to say that he did everything perfect, by the way. That is to say that Paul believes that he was on the path that the Lord had put him on and that he, he did his very best on that path. I think having a good conscience uh, revolves around two things specifically. First and foremost, it re- revolves around repentance. Revolves around repentance. Paul isn't by any stretch of the imagination saying, I was perfect in everything that I've done, therefore I have a clear conscience. No, that's not it. Sometimes we read uh, the, the New Testament, we read the, you know, these writers, Paul writing the majority of the New Testament, we think like, oh man, he was, he was just like Jesus. He was just like you, actually. Yeah, he, he lived his life to the greatest degree that he could for the Lord, but he failed at times. We might not see all of the different areas where Paul stumbled and such, and yet we know that he did stumble. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul would call himself the, the, the chief of all sinners. He would call himself the worst of the apostles. He understood who he was before Christ. None of us will arrive spiritually in this world, and therefore, repentance is a crucial part of our restoration of fellowship with God. Listen, you're not saved over and over and over again when you sin. You don't have to get saved over and over and over again. Uh, salvation is a one-time act. Paul, talking about through the book of Romans, he does an incredible job of helping us understand that salvation is a one-time act. And in fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, you've been, boom, justified by faith. The gavel has come down in heaven. The judgment has been made Jesus Christ has paid the price for you. Your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. That's what justification means. Now, what do we do as believers when we sin now? How how do we handle that? It's called repentance. Repentance is really something for believers. Honestly, it's really, that's the avenue that we use to just continue to restore our our fellowship with God. And in fact, uh, the Apostle John writes about it in First, first John chapter 1. You can read it uh, later. But he says, man, if, we're, if we will confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We're not getting saved again. We're already saved. We're restoring our fellowship with the Lord. And that's the way it works. Paul was a man who repented. That's the number one way that you keep a clear conscience before God is you repent of your sins. Maybe there are things in your mind that come to you this morning that you say, man, Lord, there's some things on my heart that I need to turn over to you. Hey, that's what repentance is all about. It's about accepting responsibility for walking in error, for, for missing the mark, and saying, Lord, will you strengthen me in these areas? Repentance should be a regular part of your lives. Not too regular, but should be somewhat regular in your lives. You should be repentant. Not only that, but you should do your best to be obedient. You should try your best to walk in the will of the Lord, like to walk in, in accordance to his statutes, like to be more like Jesus. Um, you know, we are trophies of grace, and I don't want you to miss that, because it's only by grace and grace that we're saved. It's, it's, it's God's his favor upon us is nothing that we've done. It's all everything that Jesus has done for us. So it is by grace, but, but we should have a heart that desires to follow the Lord, to do the right things. And, um, you know, David would pray, Lord, search my heart and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Just desiring to do the right thing, you know. And then he would, he would pray the prayer of, Lord, cleanse me and wash me, and restore me before you. Just being, walking with a clear conscience, you know, having, being willing to do what God tells you to do, and when you fail, repenting of those things. Now, here's what I'll tell you. Paul thought he was walking, Paul, Paul believed in his heart that he was walking in a clear conscience when he was killing Christians. Um, so that tells us something about that, that we have to be careful as it relates to how we think we're walking, right? We can, I mean, I'm really good at thinking I'm pretty good and I'm doing all the right things and all that kind of stuff, but you know what brings me back to the place of realizing how much I really need the Lord? It's his word. It's his word. It's like a mirror. 
And, you know, I can, I can go and I can, I can feel like I'm doing pretty good in life and all these kinds of things. And then I read the word and I go, oh, oh Lord, I, I, oh man, I messed up here. Will you forgive me for these things? It's not, uh, you know, the Lord is faithful to shine the light in darkness because he wants us, he wants exposure so that we can change. Like, and the enemy wants you to keep you in darkness. He wants you to keep you unrepentant and such because that's where he can have his way with you. Oh, man, you wouldn't believe if people knew this about you, what they would say. Uh, that's a lie from the enemy. And he uses that over and over and over again in our lives. Paul was walking, he thought, in a clear conscience before. And he was not. There's also the idea relating to a clear conscience that you know, we can, we can uh, be convicted about something and still not do anything about it. And over a period of time, we can do what's called searing our conscience. In other words, we become less and less sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then, uh, you know, eventually we're not convicted at all. Are you a Christian? I mean, yeah, you can be. I think that was the idea when Paul said, I'll deliver one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that he would be still saved. I mean, it's Christ's blood that saves us. It's not our ability to keep the law. That's not the point. But here's what I would say is be careful about not um, responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can't live with a clear conscience in that way. And in fact, if you're not careful, you'll sear your conscience, and then you won't even feel convicted about certain things. It's the Word of God that brings us back to the truth. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. Stay in the Word, and you'll stay on the right path. Paul was walking with a good conscience. What he was saying to these people, the way they would have taken it, the council, the Sanhedrin there, is they would have said, oh, so what? You're saying we're not? You're saying we're, you're walking the opposite way. We're walking, so now you're telling us that we're not? And man, did they get offended by what he said. Not only did he put himself on the same level by calling them brothers, but then he said they're, they're not walking with a clear conscience like I am. And so Ananias, the high priest, he instructs Paul to be smacked upside side the head. Whoosh! And Paul, Paul responds with a rebuke. And he said, you whitewashed tombs, you struck me. That's unlawful for you to strike me. And he got rebuked in that moment. And I want you to see his response. It tells us here that those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? Immediately, humility falls upon the apostle Paul. And he realizes he overstepped his bounds. And he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, uh, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul, in that moment, do you know what he does? He quotes scripture. He quotes scripture on something that he just violated himself. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. Paul took the word of God seriously. He lived by the word of God. And in fact, relating to authority, Paul took authority very seriously. And in fact, he would go on later to instruct Timothy relating to, um, you know, talking or, or con confronting elders in the church. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 15, verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul is actually bringing this this uh, principle out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. You see how the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, they marry, they're married? They're not contrary to each other. That's why we want to read the whole Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, because it, it all says the same thing. We failed in the law. We've missed the mark. God sent his son to die on a cross and rise again from the dead so that we can be saved. Now go and do the right things and walk in the newness of life that I give you. That's what it says in a nutshell, kind of. And, and so we need to know the whole word. We don't just read the New Testament. We read the Old Testament too. Because, they, you know, Paul quoted tons of Old Testament scriptures. So did Jesus. We want to know the whole counsel of God. Paul took authority seriously. Why? Because he understood authority comes from God. Authority comes from God. He didn't necessarily honor the actions of the person in authority because the high priest, I want you to understand, he was not a good guy. The high priest was a horrible person. Ananias, um, it, according to 
Josephus said that he was a violent man. Uh, he, he, he is quoted as saying, he stole from the common priests the tithes that should have gone to them, beating anyone who resisted. He was a selfish, violent man. And he was the high priest of Israel. He was the man representing the religious leaders. He was the one in charge, as it were. And man, did he take it over to his advantage. And in fact, Ananias had already been charged by the Romans for persecuting uh, the Samaritans. And when he was brought before Claudius um, Caesar, he was acquitted of the charges, according to Josephus. Paul is the only person in the room operating by the law. Paul is the only person in the room that is respecting God's word. He's the only person. Shouldn't the religious leaders be respecting God's word? Shouldn't be, they be the ones quoting to Paul these things? And yet, they have one agenda and one agenda only, and that is to wipe Paul off the face of the earth. And maybe there's an agenda like that in our culture. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Paul, understanding that, that he has no chance of getting a fair trial before these jokers, he, he, he asked for some wisdom and a word from above. Look at verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became more violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and to bring him into the barracks. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul is given wisdom and a word from above. First, wisdom. Paul knows he's in a kangaroo court here. He knows that he's not going to be treated fairly, so he does what any reasonable person ought to do. He looks to the Lord for wisdom. He needs guidance from God. You know, this isn't in a last resort, but he is now in a situation where he does not know how to handle the situation. He doesn't know what to do, so he looks to the Lord, and the Lord is faithful to give us wisdom when we need it. And in James chapter 1, it says that if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask, and the Lord will give it to you. He wants you, he doesn't want you operating in the dark. He wants to give you wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is applied knowledge. The Lord wants to give you the ability to take his word and let it come out in your feet and your hands in the way that you live your life. He wants to give you that ability, but not only do we need to ask him, but we also need to receive it. We have to be willing to do what he says, like when he shows us what wisdom looks like. What, what does wisdom look like here in this situation? It looks a lot like division here, which is interesting. You think, I thought God was a God of unity, that he would bring all people together, you know. We would sit around and sing kumbaya and all of that kind of stuff. Well, not so much. Here's the reality is God is a unifier of his people, but he is a disunifier of his enemies. In other words, do you know throughout the whole Old Testament as the children of Israel would encounter various situations where the enemy would be camping against them or whatever, they were going in to overtake different lands and stuff. It would be by division and confusion that God would give them the land, that the Lord would confuse the enemy, that he would cause them to be divided amongst themselves. And that's exactly what he does here. Understand, these guys are not operating in accordance with the, with the Spirit of God. In fact, they're, they're being influenced by demonic presence in their lives. They have given themselves over to the enemy. And Jesus even said that to them, didn't he? He said, you're of your father, the devil. 
Well, didn't they say that to him? Yeah, but Jesus, Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. Jesus is God. I mean, he, he sees right through them, and he says, you're actually of the father of the devil. What he's saying is that they're not, they don't care about God. They're not walking in accordance to God. And in fact, most of the people on this council, the only person that they, they, they worship the unholy trinity. Oh, what is that? Me, myself, and I. That's what they care about. And so the Lord is going to confuse them to uh, deliver Paul from this situation. And Paul knew that there were two groups of people that made up the Sanhedrin. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees, they, they looked at the Old Testament in this way. They believed in the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible, but they also believed in the verbal law, the oral law of Moses. And so all of the instruction that God gave Moses, they applied to their lives. They were sincere relating to the law. The Sadducees were kind of uh, totally different. They, didn't, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, and technically they didn't even believe what it said because they did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in angels or demons or anything like that. Uh, it, it was kind of a pathetic belief system. Isn't it interesting that the religious leaders in Israel had factions relating to their belief systems on the Scriptures? Huh. Wow. That, that still translates today, I guess. Uh, that's still, we're still doing the same thing. We have all kinds of fractions of Christianity. What is it based on? It's based on different belief systems of various different topics. Eschatology, you know, um, women in ministry, uh, you know, all kinds of different topics that, you know, the gifts of the Spirit and all these kinds of things. And that's why there are different assemblies of people gathering together is because they see the Scriptures differently. Well, guess what? They saw the Scriptures differently too. It was, it, 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 there's always been sort of that idea. Paul knows that there's a small subset of people on this council that are Pharisees. So he understands that, hey, I'm going to bring up, not, not, not to just create division, but because this is the core of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection from the dead. He's like, I'm on trial because the gospel is about the hope of the resurrection from the dead. And it's the dead in many different ways, spiritually dead. We come, when we're born again, we are given life. That's when we're, we, we go from death to life. Not only that, but as we are born again, then when we go through the physical death, we're delivered right through it. And Paul brings it up. I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead, the hope that I have in the resurrection. Do you know the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of the gospel? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're dead in our trespasses. We're following a dead guy like everybody else. But we aren't, are we? Because our Savior rose again from the dead on the third day, and that makes him different than any other religious leader that has ever lived, folks. Jesus didn't die for his cause. He rose again for it. And you know what? As a result of that, we can be forgiven for our sins. He is an acceptable sacrifice to the Father. And all of that pointed out in the resurrection. Well, when the Sadducees hear about the resurrection of the dead, they flip their lids. They're like, oh no, there's no resurrection from the dead. And well, the problem is that the Pharisees believe that there is. And so they're like, no, actually there is a resurrection from the dead. And next thing you know, Paul's not even the one on trial. Like, he's just sitting back going, wow, this is really interesting. You ever done that before? <laughs> you know, create an argument, and they're just like, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like watching a tennis match, you know. That's what's happening here. And Paul's just sitting back, and he watches this thing escalate and escalate and escalate. Man, it gets to a point where the scribes, who were literally the religious lawyers, the ones that understood the law, they would give the definition of the law. They, would, they were the experts in the law. Uh, they were Pharisees. They stood up at one point and they just said, you know what? This is crazy. We don't think there's anything wrong with this guy. We think he's fine. You know, how do we know that a spirit or something didn't say something to him? At that, the, the Sadducees were like, well, we don't believe in spirits. So it even got worse. Now check this out. Lysias and the Roman soldiers, they don't know the language. They don't understand Aramaic. They're sitting back watching this, just thinking like, dude, these people are crazy. These people are nuts. And Paul's sitting back, 
Just, just look at, like, I don't know what's going on here. These guys are fighting each other. The council is now in an uproar against one another. So Lysias says, man, I need to rescue Paul out of this situation again because lest he be torn into pieces. Now, he knows that this is more important than ever because now he knows Paul's a Roman citizen. So he's got to rescue him out of that situation. He comes, he scoops him out of there. He takes him up into the Antonio Fortress, the barracks, and there Paul is sitting, probably wondering, what in the world are you doing, God? What are you doing? What is happening here? Man, I thought I was going to have an opportunity to share with these guys. Next thing you know, they're going nuts on each other, and here I am once again. I haven't moved anywhere. I feel like I'm in a dead end. Do you ever feel like that? Like, what road do you have me on, Lord? And it's in this moment, Paul is discouraged, I think. He's definitely fearful. And it's in this moment that the Lord shows up. And it wasn't that the Lord was not with him already, but a very tangible sense, it says, that Jesus stood by him. As if to say, he came up, manifest, put his hand on Paul's shoulder and just let him know that he was there. And maybe you're here in a place this morning, you feel alone and you feel like the Lord's not with you. I want to remind you that that's a lie. That Jesus promised that he would never leave you or forsake you. That he would walk with you in every situation. He said, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. You're not alone. You might feel alone, but feelings lie, don't they? Listen, you're not alone. The Lord is with you. Do you know he's gone before you? He's behind you. He's got your three and he's got your nine. He's got you all surrounded. He's with you. You have nothing to worry about. The Lord is standing with you. And I love that, that the Lord comes to Paul's aid in this situation. And, you know, so oftentimes we miss his presence because we're seeking comfort from somebody else. Hey, don't let him be the last person you go to. Make him be the first person. Seek his face. He'll reveal his presence to you. And then you'll be like, oh, man, Lord, I'm sorry. What am I worried about? You got my back. Not only does the, Lord, the Lord's presence comfort Paul, but then the Lord gives Paul a word of assurance here, which is interesting. He tells him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God was giving Paul the assurance that Jerusalem wasn't his end. Like as bad as this situation looks, and he's probably scratching his head thinking, man, I don't see a way out of this other than me dying, right? I mean, look at how these guys respond to me. Every time I, they see my face, they want to kill me. That won't go away, by the way. But yet, the Lord gives Paul assurance this is not your end. You will be delivered from this place. You will be found in Rome testifying about me. Do you know, I think probably no matter what he faced after that, there was just a peace in his heart. Why? Because he had a word from the Lord. Here's what I'll tell you is that God is always speaking. The biggest issue is, it's like I'm not hearing from God. It isn't because he's not speaking. The issue is we're not listening. And sometimes we're not willing to receive what he says, too. Sometimes we're just like, yeah, I don't know. That's not for me. Hey, I think the Lord told me something for you. Well, what if it was for you, actually? What if he did say, hey, this is going to be hard, but I'm going to see you through it? But that's not for me. <laughs> that's for somebody else, you know. But what I know is God is faithful to speak to us. But you, wanna, you got to want to hear from him, too. And, you know, how does the Lord speak to us? Uh, you know, he speaks to us in, in a couple different ways. First and foremost, and the best way I find, is God speaks to us through his word, right? When I am in troubled times, which is a lot, because this world is difficult, you know, and I find myself in times of confusion and not knowing what to do a lot. So what do I do? I look to the word, and God gives me wisdom, and he gives me understanding, and he helps me to know how to navigate through different things. And I find it in his word. He encourages me through his word. 
Not only that, but then the Lord also brings other people into your life. And he'll just encourage you with uh, maybe a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge from somebody using the gift of the Holy Spirit. They speak right into your life about something. Oh, man, you know, I was, and we think it's coincidence. I was just reading this this morning, and the Lord said, you know, this and that, and it's right down the lane of what you're dealing with, and you're thinking like, and you're not telling them what's going on because we're prideful. We don't want people to know, and so we're just like, oh, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I'll take that on your And then God speaks to us through the Spirit of God at times where the Lord will just say something to us. He'll just remind us of a scripture or something like that. God is always speaking. He's never silent. But here's what, what I know is his voice is still and small. And we have to, have our, we have to tune our ear to him, be willing to hear from him. And uh, Paul had his ear tuned into the Lord, and the Lord gave him assurance you know, he told them here, and this is why I think Paul was discouraged and fearful. Because you don't say take courage to somebody who's not. Like Jesus knows his heart condition, and he says, take courage. In other words, fear not. Uh, did you know that there are not just 365 fear nots in the Bible, but there's 366 fear nots in the Bible. God has one fear not for every day of the year, including a leap year. Like he doesn't leave anything out. He's got it all covered. He wants you to know that you can fear not because he's in control. He's in control. Paul got wisdom and a word from above. Well, the Jews have not left the building yet. They're still discouraged. They're, they're still trying to kill Paul. And so the next thing we find is a plot devised. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, you, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are, going, we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Here we find a scheme being plotted. We find, uh, you know, just this, this evil being devised against God's man. Now, this, this is something that's been going on since day one, because this has the handprints of the enemy all over it. He's a schemer. He's a plotter. And you know, he's always scheming against us, constantly scheming against us. He's, he's trying to find ways to plot against you and I to get us off track, to get our eyes off the ball, to get our eyes off of Jesus, to silence us from things. And, you know, he's done somewhat of a good job by just distracting us with the things of the world. But not only that, but he's plotting now against us. And, and specifically in our country, man, he's plotting against Christians. Do you know? Can you see that? We have eyes wide open. We know exactly what's going on in the world today. And here we have the issue in our culture today, and it's becoming more prevalent, is you Christians, you evangelicals are the problem in our country today. And so, you know, we need to get rid of Christians. That's where it's going. Do you know who is the, who's the root of that kind of thought? The devil. He came to steal, steal, kill, and destroy, folks. And he is plotting against us. But I want you to understand that God is in control. Like the devil is subject to God. And the only thing that's going to happen is what God allows to happen. And so it doesn't mean that we won't go through difficult times, but what we know is that when the enemy is trying to thwart God's plan, God thwarts the enemy's plan. David knew this well, man. He was plotted against a lot. David was, Saul wanted to kill David. He had different ways of trying to get at him. David writes in Psalm 21:11, sort of these words, maybe to himself, but also to encourage us, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. They, that's emphatic. They will not succeed. Why? Because God's in control. God's in control, and he knows what he's doing. The, we, we find here 40 men who are demonically influenced. And how do we know they're demonically influenced? Because they're going to kill a man for no reason. 
They're going to kill a man for standing for Jesus Christ. That is demonic. And we already know that Israel is completely off track. The religious leaders are, are not walking with the Lord. And neither are many of the people. And so here we find these 40 men that are just being absolute morons here. And they decide, hey, we're going to make a vow to God that we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. Um, that's why Jesus said don't make vows, lest you have to keep them. And here what we're going to see is that they are not going to kill Paul. So what do they do? Well, they probably break the vow because they're not walking with the Lord anyway. But here's what we know is the enemy, he plots against us. He devises plots against us, but God is a revealer of plots. Look at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks. Did you, you know, eyes wide open, Klaus Schwab, I'm telling you, the World Economic Forum. This is what's going on, folks. We're not, we are aware of what's happening. Like, I forgot that was up there. Thank you. We're aware. We're very aware. Why? Because God is the revealer of plots. And that's a plot. And the plot against, is against you. So interesting. But it, here, God reveals the plot to the Apostle Paul. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him to tell no one that, they have, uh, that you have informed me of these things. So we learned something new about Paul here, that he had a sister in Jerusalem. Not only that, but he had a nephew. She had at least one, one boy there in Jerusalem. And uh, so it was Uncle Paul. And you know, I can imagine that when Uncle Paul came to town, I was like, oh, man, here's Uncle Paul. He's going to tell everybody about Jesus. Uncle Paul, you got the uncle in your, in your, in your family that's the, telling everybody about Jesus? That was Paul. Well, here, this young boy, coincidentally, no, hears about the plot against Paul. How does that happen? Because God revealed it. Because God revealed it. God is showing What's happening? Just like he's showing you and I in our culture today, like it's never been clearer what the agenda is, right? We can see it clearly. Uh, did you guys see this last, the, earlier this week, the, uh, the reports after the Iowa caucus? Did you see uh, what was said by uh, MSNBC uh, Joy Reid? Do you guys know who she is? Look her up. She's racist. She's black. But you know what she said? She said, the, the reason why, and I'm not, I'm not, it has nothing to do with the candidates, right? The Republican caucus there, has, you know, Trump won by 51%. Who cares? Here's what she said, though. The only reason that he won is because of the right Christians. It was the white Christians that allowed him to, listen, come on. Critical race theory narrative is being pushed through our culture, and it's ridiculous. It's reverse racism. That's what she's standing Racist, And in fact, if you listen to anything that this lady says, she'll tell you that Christians are responsible for slavery in America altogether. It's ridiculous. It's an agenda. It's a narrative. And God has opened our eyes to it. Hey, I'm thankful that we have a county mayor here in, in Columbia, Sheila Butt, who stands for the Lord. And she is all about exposing the deep state and talking about these things. God is using her to reveal the plot of the enemy. Because it is a plot of the enemy. The Lord reveals Paul, the plot against the apostle Paul here. In the same way. This just goes to show us that we can trust the Lord. No matter what we face. Like God is going to reveal the enemy's plot. And so, Paul's nephew comes to him, tells him what's up. Paul grabs a centurion and says, take him to Lysias and let him tell him what's going on. 
Lysias hears the thing, and then he ends up <clears throat> taking the boy and telling him, don't tell anybody about what you've said. He's going to uh, devise his own plan to get the Apostle Paul out of the way. This, goes, this, this reminded me of a few scriptures I want to share with you. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. It's true. Hey, it's God's plan. It's not the enemy's plan. And no matter what the enemy tries to do, the Lord will stand against it. No weapon that is fashioned against you uh, shall succeed. Not only that, but, you know, we're reminded of 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have the Lord inside of us. We have the wisdom. We have the, he's already exposing the darkness to us. And I came to what I consider to be one of the greatest Psalms in the book of Psalms, Psalm 91. <clears throat> you know the Psalm maybe, but if you don't, man, you should read the whole thing. It's an incredible Psalm. But I just picked a few uh, verses out of here that should bring you some comfort relating to the things that we're dealing with here in our culture. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the otter, uh, the adder, the, lion, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. There's many, many, many scriptures that remind us that God is for us. And that the only thing that's going to be allowed to happen in your life is what he allows, you to, allows to happen. And there are things that he allows to happen at times, and we don't understand those things. That's when we press in and we say, Lord, I don't know, but I trust you. Why? Because he's trustworthy. Because he's trustworthy. We don't have to know it all, but we trust him. And we know that he's on our side, and he's doing things to help us. He's got your back. Just walk in his will and then rest in his refuge. He's a strong tower. You can run to him. You can be safe in him. You just wait on the Lord. Well, this goes on to reveal that the plot is frustrated. Verse 23. <clears throat> then he called the two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questioning questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have <clears throat> against him. So Lysias decides, man, this is above my pay grade. Like, I, I'm not going to handle this situation. These guys are clearly at odds with each other. They want to kill him. Um, this, this needs to go to a higher court. And so he sends him to Felix. Felix is the governor of Judea. He lives in Caesarea. That's where he's staying at that time. Uh, and, and so uh, uh, Lysias understands that he needs to get Paul from Jerusalem, the 70 miles north, up to Caesarea. And so he musters up an army, and he says, hey, we're going to protect Paul all the way up there. The Lord told Paul he had nothing to worry about. He gave him a word of assurance that he was going to go to Rome. And so every step of the way, he must be thinking, Lord, you're, you're doing what you said you were going to do. Thank you, God. And imagine that you're one of those 40 guys. And you're thinking like, dude, I'm so hungry. Man, am I thirsty right now? Hey, 
what are you going to have? What's the first thing you're going to have when we kill this joker? You know, and, and it's the third hour of the night. It's the middle of the night. They're laying in wait, waiting for Paul to come out, and they see a gigantic army come out, and they're like, their, their hope goes whoop. They're like, oh, man. Well, let's head to Waffle House. I guess that's probably what they said. I don't know what they did, but you know they didn't keep the vow. You know they didn't die, die of thirst or starvation. You know they weren't operating in the spirit of the Lord in the first place. So they just said, hey, let's go out to eat. We'll, we'll, we'll sulk our sorrows over a, a falafel or something like that. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. So Paul is being taken care of is my point. God is doing what he said he was going to do. And, you know, does it surprise you when he does that? Like, does it surprise you that God takes care of you? Like, when he tells you, hey, I'm going to do this in your life, and then you're like, well, we'll see. And we're just waiting, wondering. Man, you can take him in his word. I mean, your eternity is in his hands. You think you would trust him with the little peasly things of this life, right? Finally, we come to delivery complete. Look at verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea, he delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he had learned that he was from Cilicia... He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. If you've ever been to Israel, then you know that Caesarea is an incredible place. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, You know, back in ancient days when it was built by Herod the Great, it was um, an amazing structure. They built an artificial um, wall, a, a barrier for the... I mean, just the technology they use to build it, it's amazing. You can look it up and Google it, you know, and read more about it. It's, it's just amazing how that was built. Herod was an incredible architect, and he probably killed a lot of people to get it done. So who knows? But, but it, just a really beautiful place. This is where Felix is hanging out. It's, he's in the palace there. Dude, it has a pool. They piped in p- fresh water right there. So we had a freshwater pool. He had the ocean to look at and all of these kinds of things. And uh, you know, Caesarea is one of those places where a, it's a couple monumental things happened in Caesarea. We recall when we read in Acts chapter 10, it was Cornelius who lived where? In Caesarea that Peter was sent to. And when Peter stepped over the threshold of Cornelius' home into a Gentile home as a Jew, it changed everything. Like God did an incredible work in Caesarea. It was kind of the first sort of Gentile to come to Christ in that way where, where, where God went to them through a Jew. Just amazing. Many people believe that, um, a lot of, uh, you know, archaeologists and such, they didn't believe that Pilate was a real person. And it's been said that when every time a shovel goes into the ground in, in uh, Israel that something new is found. And it just so happens in Caesarea when they were... Uh, unearthing, they were doing an archaeological dig there, that they unearthed this cornerstone that had the name Pontius Pilate on it. And, and so it proved that he was a real person. Not that archaeology proves the Bible, but the Bible proves archaeology, which is so cool. The Lord is just, he's just faithful to do those kinds of things, just to reveal himself to us. But here in Caesarea, Felix, Paul will spend two years here, and he'll be here waiting And we'll see through the next several chapters where Paul is able to give his testimony once again. And at the end of that, he appeals to Caesar and he is sent to Rome. As we close today, I just want to draw your attention back to one place. And that is this, that no matter what you face in life, it doesn't matter what circumstance you find yourself in, that Jesus is standing with you. Like you're not alone. You'll never be alone. You might feel like you're alone, but you're not. It's a lie. We have to just remind ourselves that he's with us. And if you feel alone today, then press into the Lord, you know? 
he, he's going to see you through whatever you're going through. And he wants you to trust him. He wants you to know his presence. And in his presence is peace. And that's how you know it. And so if you're lacking that this morning, just press into the Lord. He wants to reveal. He's standing there by you. And he promised us that. You can take it to the bank. But not only that, but the Lord also wants to encourage you. And, you know, maybe he's given you a word that is coming to mind this morning. And you're thinking like, oh, yeah, the Lord told me this, but I never really saw that, you know, I'm not, not really seeing that come to fruition or whatever. I want to encourage you this morning to trust what he says. And if you need a word from the Lord, seek him on it. Like he's faithful to speak to us. He wants to bring you comfort and peace. He's not necessarily going to give you the whole plan. He didn't tell Paul, hey, Paul, we're going to go to, to Caesarea for a period of time, and then we're going to go to Rome. He didn't give him the whole plan. He just told him it was going to happen. And the Lord is faithful to do that in your life. Just remind yourself of all the things that he's done in your life. That's testimony that he's with you, that he's for you, and that he'll never forsake you. Amen? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.